Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thanks that we are called into your presence by you today. That we gather for worship because you are worthy of our worship. That you are great and awesome. That your steadfast love endures forever. And we thank you for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again for us and sits at your right hand, O Father. And we know he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. We thank you, O God, for the spirits as well that you pour out upon us to draw our hearts to you and open our hearts and minds to understand the gospel and to believe it. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to worship you today, and we, we delight in you. And we ask, O Lord, that you would fill our hearts with joy because of your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome again. It is good to be together in worship this morning. Uh, a number of announcements to draw to your attention as we get started today. Uh, first, uh, Loma, our organist, is not here this morning. Her mother passed away uh, this week, and so we'd ask you uh, to keep her in your prayers uh, as she is grieving. They have private services today and tomorrow, and so while well, many of us would love to go and uh, show our concern and offer our uh, offer our concerns to her, uh, the services are private, so you're welcome to send her cards. Uh, also, the obituary in the paper can direct you. Uh, if you'd like to give any kind of donation to her mother's church, you can find that information in the paper or come see me after. Um, a few other announcements as well. Um, our new or our evening men's Bible study starts again tomorrow night, so it'll be Monday nights at 7. Uh, we are beginning a new study on the book of Joshua. Uh, our books are back-ordered because everything in COVID is back-ordered, even biblical commentaries, which is weird, but okay. So if you are part of that and would like a hard copy, I emailed out a scanned copy. I have a few of those here uh, to pass out. That's Mondays at 7. We try to meet every week. Uh, and then you also uh, may have received an email or a hard copy of another letter from me uh, on behalf of the session, letting you know about some of our decisions recently. We have decided uh, to start Sunday school next Sunday at 9.45, so we'd invite you to come. We have classes for all ages uh, from 9.45 to 10.45, and so we'll be doing that between uh, our two services. Uh, and so we are going to continue having two services, and it is a difficult decision for us. We long to be together, all of us, but we felt that our desire to long for all of us to be together at one time comes behind our desire that all of us would come and worship at any time. And so we're, we'd like to stay distanced a little bit longer to invite those who are still a little reluctant to come back, give them an opportunity to come and worship, that worshiping God is a higher priority than worshiping God, all of us in one body. And so we long to do that. Uh, we're taking another month to pray about that and consider how we can best lead the church. And so I'd ask for your continued prayers for us. I'd ask for your uh, continued participation in worship as we come and worship God together. It is a highly important and valuable part of our lives. It is what God commands us to do. Uh, so if you have any further questions about uh, worship or Sunday school uh, starting next week, uh, please see me after the service. Give the church office a call. Uh, I'd be happy to talk with you about those. So any other announcements as we uh, get started this morning? All right. Would you stand for our call to worship? Call to worship, uh, read responsibly based on Psalm 105. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, 
sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Let us seek the Lord and his strength. May we seek his presence continually. Um, if you'll look in your bulletin, come thou font of every blessing is our next hymn, number 11. confession in unison from Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Invitation to Silent Confession. Knowing that God knows every thought in our minds, every attitude of our hearts, and every word from our mouths, let us confess our sins before him and find mercy in Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Assurance of pardon. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed.
You may be seated. We hear that through Christ's sacrifice, we have been healed and reconciled to God our Father, and we can come to Him with our prayer requests. And so we delight to share them each week and delight to share also those requests that He has answered and give Him thanks for those. So are there prayer requests that we can lift up this morning? Yeah, Don? Okay, we can pray for the Perryman family. Uh, the founder of the Perryman Company passed away on Thursday, so please uh, keep them in your prayers as they uh, grieve the loss. You have a prayer request, Tim? Uh, one of Tim's son's girlfriend, Erica, um, both of her grandfathers had heart attacks this week. Uh, one of them passed away, so prayers for Erica and her family as they uh, grieve the loss of one of her grandfathers and also continue to be concerned for her other grandfather. Uh, so please keep Erica in your prayer. Yes, Peter. That's right. We had two new babies in our family. Um, my first cousins uh, each had a baby over the last two weeks. They're, each of them, their first babies. Baby Maggie and baby Calvin were both born, and they're both doing well, and so are their moms, my, my cousins. And so, yes, we're very excited for new life. Baby Calvin. Yes, Silas. Yeah, Marilyn? Yeah, we can pray for the Houston family, uh, that Jean passed away, and prayers for them as they grieve. Prayers also, again, for Loma's family, uh, as her mother passed away this week. Uh, prayers for Marilyn's mother-in-law, Leona, as uh, she fell and broke her shoulder, and so she is uh, still under rehab care at Presbyterian Home, so please keep her in prayer as uh, she is there. Um, I'd ask also prayers in general uh, for those those of our loved ones who are in care facilities during this time when there's such minimal visitation, uh, and so for their cognitive and for their relational health. Um, I know for my dad it has been an incredibly difficult time, and for many others that I've spoken to as well, just very difficult uh, to not be able to see them, to visit them as we used to, uh, and a lot of them are suffering because of it. And so prayers for them that God would be there with them and comfort them. Yeah, Laura? Uh, so we can continue to pray for Sherry Zoller, one of our members here. Uh, she's undergoing some IV treatments to help with inflammation in her brain after surgery earlier this summer. Also prayers for Laura's friend Josh. Uh, 
who has many family members struggling in different ways. His wife is having difficulties with her pregnancy. Uh, his dad is about to have heart procedures, is that right? And his grandfather had passed away, is under hospice care. Yeah, so we can be praying for Josh and for his family. Yeah, Marilyn? Tuesday. Uh, we can pray for Carol Smith. Uh, she's having a, a heart cath on Tuesday. Uh, so just keep Carol in prayer. She's one of our members, one of our deacons. Pray for peace, indeed. We can pray for peace in the world, in our nation, uh, at a time when we're desperately in need of it. Yes. Well, let's come to the Lord in prayer this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you are good and that your love endures forever, and your faithfulness extends through all the generations, that when you make promises, they are kept, and though it may feel like a long time, you keep them in your perfect time. For you, O oh God, are wiser than we are, you are greater than we are that you can comprehend far more than we ever could. And so, Lord, we give thanks that the world is in your control, and we do pray for peace. In this time of disunity, of division, of upheaval, of anxiety, we pray, O oh God, that you would bring peace. We pray that you would bring peace to our hearts through Christ, knowing that he reigns, and that nothing happens outside of your control, O oh God. We pray that you would give us peace in knowing that no one can hurt us, for we are in Christ. That though they may kill the body, they cannot kill the soul. And that we are secure in you, whether it is from persecution or from sickness or from death, Christ is stronger. And so, God, give us that strong faith in this difficult time. Give us peace, O Lord, as we seek to be peacemakers, speaking kindness to those around us and love. Help us to be understanding to those who are different from us and to humbly look to the interests of others above our own. We pray, O oh God, that you would bring an end to this virus. We pray that you would wipe it off the earth, that you would bring healing to those who are sick, that you would protect those who are vulnerable, that you would give unified wisdom to the medical leaders around our nation and around the world for a plan to attack. We pray, O oh God, that you would subdue anxiety and panic and help us to rightly understand the threat the virus poses. We pray, O oh God, for those who are suffering from all of the complications of dealing with it, whether they be children and teachers at schools, whether they be elderly loved ones in care facilities, whether they be people who are isolated with families that are going through great difficulties, we pray, O oh God, that you would bring peace and comfort to those who are suffering in this time. We do ask for healing for those who are sick and protection for those, oh God, who are dealing with ailments and injuries. We pray that you would bring healing and comfort. We ask, oh Lord, that you would help us to live for you, that you would help us to love Jesus so much that we delight to obey your word, that we find it our very most and strongest desire of our hearts is that we want to obey you because the word that you have given to us is good and it is for our good. And so, Lord, help us to desire obedience and to repent of our sin, to live godly lives, O Lord. We pray that the gospel would go forth from our mouths, that we would share the good news of Jesus Christ because he is our treasure, that we would share him with others, that we would tell other people what Jesus means to us. And we ask, O God, that by your Spirit and the Word going forth, that you would save souls. 
We pray, O God, that those who do not know You would come to believe in You, that You would open their hearts to believe, O God, and that You would redeem them in the blood of Christ and that they would come to join our number in the church worldwide. We pray, O God, that the Gospel would go forth in every nation and that people from every tribe, every tongue and nation would come to believe in Jesus Christ so that the whole world praises You. And so, Lord, we lift up these big prayers, but we lift them up to You, for You are bigger than our prayers, and You can do far more than we can imagine or ask. And so we come together and we pray to You as Jesus taught His disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, we've got a children's message today. We've got small props, so good luck seeing them. All right, it's not going to happen. All right, let's see what I've got in here. Okay. We're going to talk about value today. Okay? Value and what things are worth. Hi, Silas. Yes. Okay, I've got three coins here. They're all the same color. Are they worth the same? Does anyone know? I've got a dime, a nickel, and a quarter. So they're all the same color. Does that mean they're the same value? Yeah. Yeah, no? Okay. Alright? They're not all the same size. So it must be that the biggest one is worth the most, and then the next biggest one is the next most, and the smallest is worth the least. Is that right? No. That doesn't make any sense at all. Who made this money up? This is crazy. So which one's worth the most of the three? Josie? The biggest. The quarter. That's right. Which one's worth the next most? Peter, the small, this doesn't make any sense. The smallest, the dime, and then the middle is worth the least. Now that seems kind of silly. If you looked at them and tried to figure which ones are the most important and most valuable, you'd probably get the quarter right, that it's the biggest, but the dime is the next most. So if you'd look at them without reading what they say, you'd, you'd probably get the values all wrong. All right, so that's the coins, but the papers, surely that's easy to figure out. Okay, so I've got one dollar. It's got a one on it. And I've got $20. Which one is worth more, guys? You guys are giggling at me. Come on, which one's worth more, the one or the 20? James? 20, that's right. All right, well, how about this? Here's this one. Can you guys see what number's on here? What number is that? No, it's more than 100. 1,000. It says 1,000 on here. So how much do you think this one is worth? More? Less? What do you think? You think it's worth 20? Okay. What about you guys? You think it's worth the most? Okay. This one is... A mil colones. It's 1,000 colones. It's Costa Rican money, actually. It's worth about $2. Yeah. 
Even though it says a thousand on it, it's only worth two of these dollars. And so just by looking at things, we cannot really know the value. Sometimes we get it wrong when we look at them because we don't know the truth about how valuable things are. Well, in our Bible passage today, Jesus talks about value and worth. Okay, Paul talks about value and worth in our Bible passage today. And he says of all the things he's done, all the A's on tests he's gotten, all the good things he's done for other people, all the prayers he's prayed, that nothing is worth as much as knowing Jesus. That knowing Jesus is the most valuable, best thing in all the world. More valuable than money, more valuable than our house, more valuable than our toys, more valuable even than our family. That knowing Jesus is the most valuable thing in all the world. And so that's what he tries to teach the Philippians in his letter. And that's what I'm praying that God helps teach us today, that knowing Jesus is the most valuable thing in all the world. So let's pray. God, we thank you that these kids know a little bit about money. We pray that they would not obsess over it or value it too highly, but that they would see Jesus and knowing him as of greatest value and worth in all the world. We pray that that would be true, not just for these children, but for us as grown-ups, that you would help us to value Christ, to treasure him above all else. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, at this time, you're welcome to stand and share the peace of Christ with your neighbors around you today. All right, I love that these kids think I'm walking around with $1,000 in my pocket. Just a $1,000 bill sitting right there for anyone to just snatch. It's so valuable, I use it as a bookmark. That's, that's what I use it for. So We come to the point in our service where we listen to the Lord. That we have a God who speaks. A God who reveals Himself to us. And he has preserved that to us, that we do not have to go to just one person who is the mouthpiece of God. We do not have to go and find some place where God speaks, but rather God reveals himself to us in his word. And thankfully, throughout the ages, the word has been printed and publicized in many places. And we get to hear it in the freedom of our worship here in this country. We get to hear the word of God. And so we hear the word of the Lord, knowing it is God speaking to us through the word. This morning, our Old Testament reading is found in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 12. So you can find all of the scripture readings either in the bulletin printed out 
or you can find them in your own Bibles or on your devices. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. This is a passage immediately after King David has sinned in his most flagrant way that we find in the Scriptures, that he desired another man's wife and he took her as his wife, and in order to cover up their sin, he had her husband put to the front of the lines where he was murdered. He took what belonged to someone else. And so Nathan, the prophet and friend of Daniel, comes to him and confronts him. But instead of simply saying, you have done something wrong, he gets David to convict himself. He essentially comes at it from the back door to surprise David into being convicted for his sin. So hear the word of the Lord from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 10. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and to drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. It's our Old Testament reading from Second Samuel as Nathan causes David to convict himself of his sin. Our New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew and the words of Jesus. We find two very, very short parables pointing to us of the, the worth, the great value of the kingdom. The value of the kingdom and how it is worth everything we have. So Matthew chapter 13, verses 14, 44 through 46. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Amen. We continue in our worship by affirming our faith together and confessing what it is we believe, and we've been doing so through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we speak to, we confess today what we believe about Christ, how He is our prophet, our priest, and a king. Would you read responsively with me and confess our faith? How is Christ our Redeemer? As our Redeemer, Christ is a prophet, priest, and king in both his humiliation and his exaltation. How is Christ a prophet? As a prophet, Christ reveals the will of God to us for our salvation by his word and spirit. How is Christ a priest? As a priest, Christ offered himself up once as a sacrifice for us to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. And he continually intercedes for us. How is Christ a king? As a king, Christ brings us under his power, rules and defends us, and restrains and conquers all his and all our enemies. Amen. Now it doesn't feel like someone is pulling my head backwards the whole time. Well, sometimes on Facebook or the Internet, if you're scrolling through something, you may have seen one of these upside-down painting videos. You may have seen them on a morning show or something like that. They are very interesting. Someone is there, and it is a time-lapse of them painting a picture. And you have no idea what it is they're painting. And they're doing this picture and you're just staring at it the whole time. And they get ready to finish it. And then all of a sudden, they flip it upside down. And you're like, oh, that's what it is. And the whole time they were painting, in their mind, they're having to figure out, I'm painting this upside down. Which I guess people can do. And it must take remarkable talent to be able to paint something that looks perfect right side up, but that looks totally confusing upside down. Well, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul does his own version of an upside down painting. He starts talking about something new and unexpected, seemingly disconnected from everything he has said so far in his letter. But as he draws this argument to a close, the indecipherable picture, the reason why he's doing this becomes clear. It's not that Paul is hiding what he is saying. Rather, he takes the rhetorical back door, helping us and the Philippians to convict ourselves of our sin, just as Nathan did for David in our Old Testament reading. And so, if you will, you can open up your Bibles or the bulletin. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 this morning. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks that you speak to us, that your word is inspired, that it does not fail in that which you have sent it to do, that it does not contain errors that lead us astray, but no, it guides us in the truth for our life and for our salvation. We pray, O oh God, that you would give us ears to hear today. Give us open hearts and minds that we would hear your word as your word that you would use me to proclaim your word, to clearly explain and to apply it and that our hearts would be open to that and to use me in spite of my sin to share the word. Lord, help us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the big idea I want us to hear this morning in Philippians 3, 1 through 11 is that we are to treasure knowing Christ. And to treasure that above all else, not putting confidence in our flesh and thinking that those things are treasures that we do, but rather treasuring Christ by being conformed to him. And so we're going to look at this familiar argument that Paul has made in other places in the Bible. We're going to consider how Paul has us convict ourselves, and we're going to look at the worth of Christ as well. Well, we can see that Paul is up to something new when he uses the word finally. He's transitioning to a new subject, but we would also notice that he's doing something new because he gives warnings in verse 2. Warnings that he has given on other occasions. And he is warning the Philippians against a group of people that we refer to as Judaizers. As Judaizers. 
that these Judaizers were typically Jewish believers in Jesus who taught that all believers in Jesus needed to become Jewish as well. And so they wanted all Christians, whether Jewish or Gentile, to obey the Jewish laws of clean and unclean that we find in the Old Testament. Now, Paul, earlier in his life, had written the letter to the Galatians, which is the most comprehensive argument against this Judaizer teaching that we find in all the Bible. But this sudden warning against the Judaizers in a friendly letter to the Philippians seems kind of odd. The Judaizers had not been mentioned yet in chapters 1 and 2, and they don't come up later in the rest of chapters 3 and 4. But Paul, maybe he just really wants to talk about it. Maybe he just kind of gets in a rhythm. It's his little soapbox thing. We don't know. Either way, Paul's gotten really good at explaining why these people were really bad. And so he delivers a two-pronged takedown of the Judaizers here in verses 2 through 4. First, Paul says that the Judaizers do the opposite of what they think they are doing. That they are the opposite of what they think they are. And he says that in that threefold warning of verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, Paul is not just choosing any derogatory terms here. He's not saying, look out for the jerks. No, he's carefully choosing his words. See, dogs were not the cute household pets that they are today. In those days, they were dirty unclean scavengers. And so he is saying that you who try to be clean are unclean beasts. And though they were trying to observe the holy principles of God's law, Paul calls them evildoers. That the very acts the Judaizers think are good and right are expressions of evil because they are pulling them and other people away from Jesus. And he calls them mutilators of the flesh for their insistence that all Christian men be circumcised so that they could become Jewish. He is saying that they are not performing a sign of the covenant. They are unnecessarily and irreversibly cutting the bodies of men, offering false promises. Because Paul says that we, Christian believers, are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. That the true people of God, those who belong to the covenant, are Christians who have faith in Christ, regardless of whether or not we keep the Jewish laws. And so he is telling these Judaizers, you are doing the exact opposite of what you think you are doing. And then in the second prong of his argument, in verse 4, he tells them essentially, you know guys, I tried this before. And I did what you're doing better than you're even doing it. And you know what? I gave it all up for Jesus. You see, the implied teaching of the Judaizers was that in order to be a good Christian, you needed to be a good Jew. And Paul argues that by following the Jewish laws, you would be putting confidence in your flesh, in what you do, instead of confidence in Christ. And so he writes, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
that the most Jewish of the Judaizers cannot compare with Paul's Jewish credentials, that his are better. And so Paul sarcastically lists his resume for them. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I, I am a child of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, blameless according to the law. And so Paul can just like drop his mic and say, top that, guys. You think you're better than you think you could be more Jewish than me? See, Paul was a preeminent Jew before Jesus called him. He was not just circumcised as a child, as a child of a Jewish family. He could trace his lineage back to the people of Benjamin and that he was rigorously trained as a Pharisee in the law. That he had zealously worked to keep the law. He prided himself in his Jewish accomplishments. And yet, in verse 7, he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever he had earned, whatever he had accomplished for the sake of Jesus, he gave it up. That none of that confidence in the flesh was worth what Jesus could provide. He tried the path of confidence of the flesh, but it was a dead end, and so his resume was nothing to him. He is not proud of what he lists. It's just like, yeah, that's how I used to live. But he's not proud of it. And so Paul's two-pronged takedown of the Judaizers is in keeping with his other writings we find in Scripture. He has said it before in other places, and he probably will have to say it again before he dies. Nothing he says in here is all that unusual, but what is unusual is what are you doing bringing it up here in Philippians? Why are you talking about it now? We've not, Philippi doesn't seem to be struggling with this issue. Why are we talking about it? Well, how would the Philippians have heard what Paul was saying? They would have likely been shouting, Amen! Go get them, Paul! They would have clearly seen the Judaizers as people who put too much confidence in their own works because they were comparing themselves to Gentile Christians who they looked down on for not keeping the law. And so the brothers and sisters in Philippi would have agreed, those Judaizers are doing it all wrong. It is foolish to be so focused on your own accomplishments. And how those accomplishments lead you to see yourself as better than others. Acting in that way, they would realize that would, that would erode unity. It would stir up division. Instead, those Judaizers should be striving side by side for the gospel instead of focusing on their own interests. They should humble themselves. Oh. And as they start thinking about it, they start realizing, you got me, Paul, that these Judaizers are eroding the unity of the church by looking to their own interests instead of the interests of Christ. That instead of humbly recognizing they are saved by Christ, they are promoting their own goodness, comparing themselves to other, and fracturing the unity of the church. That's a lot like what Paul has been writing to the Philippians. And so like the sheep story that Nathan shared with David, Paul uses this example of the Judaizers 
to get the Philippians to convict themselves of their sin. He draws a connection between how the Judaizers value their own religious obedience and how the Philippians prioritize their own preferences when fighting with one another. Maybe they had been comparing resumes with one another, that who had greater expertise or experience. Perhaps they had been looking at their own good deeds while pointing out the peculiar sins and failures of others in Philippi. We don't know the exact disagreements within the church, but we know that like the Judaizers, they were comparing themselves with each other and thereby undermining the unity that they were called to express as the church. They looked to their own gains for their confidence instead of Christ. They considered what they had done of great value, especially in order to compare what they have done with what others have done. And so Paul writes that this is not how we should consider our gains, our works, our accomplishments. He writes that whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Note that Paul says he counted these gains as loss. Because he knows that many of these gains are indeed good and valuable things. That our good works are good and valuable things. Our care for the needy, our service in church, our knowledge of the Bible, our avoidance of sin, all of those are good things. But Paul considers or values them as losses for the sake of Christ. Because when we too highly value our gains, we undermine what we have gained in Christ. We value what we have gained and undermine what Christ has gained for us. Our salvation, our peace, and our unity. See, we undermine our salvation when we think that we have, what we have gained in our works is deserving of salvation. If we consider our works as great gains, we can wrongly think they are so valuable that God owes us salvation because of them. And so as good as our good works might be when it comes to being saved, we have to consider them as nothing. That our works do not save us, Christ saves us. But by valuing them too highly, we undermine our salvation in Christ. We also undermine our peace in Christ if we value our gains too highly. Because if we think our standing before God is based solely on what we have done, then we will always be wondering if we have done enough. We will never have assurance because our gains could always be greater. There's always someone who has done more than us. And we will undermine the truth of the assurance that God gives us that we cannot lose the salvation that Christ has gained for us. And we also undermine the unity in Christ that we should have as Christians together because we compare our gains with one another in order to feel better about ourselves. One commentator writes that the drive to reassure our uneasy consciences through our best efforts and our side-long glances at our competitors ties us more closely to Paul's rabbinic colleagues than we care to admit. 
that if there is a clear standard of what makes you good or bad, then I have a really good way to keep track of the standings and whether I am high or low compared to my fellow Christians. But if we consider our accomplishments as loss for the sake of Christ, then we can't use them to compare them with each other. Instead, we will see each other the same as those saved by grace, by Jesus, not as those who have done more or less than us. And so Paul uses the example of the Judaizers to show the Philippians that just as the Judaizers need to give up their precious law keeping, so the Philippians need to give up their precious accomplishments, the things that they think cause them to be better or worse than others, that they need to consider their gains as loss for the sake of Christ. But it is really hard to do what Paul did. To take your resume and put it in the shredder. And not just as a symbolic act, but as a true understanding of all the good that you feel you have done and just to dispose of it. How can we see such good gains as loss when we consider them so valuable? How can we look at our accomplishments, our resumes, our good works, all the things we've done for God and say they are nothing? How can we, like Paul, say they are garbage? Only if we consider them that way for the sake of Christ. Only if we see Christ as greater, a far greater gain worth treasuring. And then we need to readjust value. We need a value adjustment. And when I think about value adjustment, I think about March 2020. Because if you, well, I guess we could go back to Christmas. Let's say for Christmas 2020, we were given season passes to Walt Disney World. Wouldn't that be awesome? Sitting around the Christmas tree, you'd be like, wow, we're going to Disney World all the time. This is great. This is wonderful. Boom. March 2020 the revaluing hits. And all of a sudden we're thinking, oh, if only Santa had given me a 12-pack of Clorox wipes. Oh, how rich I would be. We need to readjust our value. The same goes for our good works. We need something to come in and change the valuations so that we can see them as loss. Paul says that Jesus does this. He writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul considers knowing Jesus of surpassing worth that that relationship with Jesus is far more valuable than anything else in the world. That everything else he has accomplished and worked for in his whole life is disposable compared to knowing Jesus. It's very similar to the two parables from our New Testament reading. In each of those parables, a person finds something of great value and sells everything in order to acquire this new, far more valuable thing. Paul says that he did the very same thing with Jesus. 
He took that resume he had been building in his life in Judaism his whole life and he threw it away in the garbage because Jesus was worth more than all he had done. But note that it isn't because Paul found a better way to get to the same thing. He didn't throw it all away for the prize of salvation. Paul doesn't count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of the benefits of Christ. He focuses on the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Paul is less concerned with the gift of salvation than the giver. He treasures knowing Jesus, the Son of God, his Redeemer. And so Paul treasures the relationship he has with Christ. J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, writes that what matters supremely, therefore, is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that He knows me. For Paul, that relationship, that knowing God and being known by Him, it's not just knowing about Jesus. It's not just knowing snippets of His teaching or stories of His life. Knowing Jesus is a relationship with the living God. And this relationship means that Paul is found in Christ. That's a weird thing to think about, to be found in Christ. But it's at least something like getting, it rubs off on Paul, that Christ rubs off on him, being in this relationship. Because he is found in the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ. And so instead of his good works being a checklist or resume, his good works are done out of faith out of trusting that God has done everything for him, they are grateful expressions of obedience instead of proud Boy Scout badges of honor to parade around in front of other people. And being found in Christ means seeing our lives as following his pattern, sharing in his sufferings because we know the resurrection power is coming that will raise us on the last day. And so being found in Him is finding Christ's character in us and finding the cross-shaped life in us. Paul doesn't simply believe in Jesus. He doesn't simply serve Jesus. He treasures knowing Jesus. He delights that Jesus is His Lord. He rejoices that a sinner like him has a relationship with the living God and he invites the Christians in Philippi to rejoice with him. That instead of comparing themselves to one another, he calls them to treasure the fact that they all know God and are all known by him. That what can possibly compare with knowing and being known by Jesus? See, when Paul talks about Jesus in this way, it should be contagious. Our joy in knowing Christ is contagious rather than competitive. I can't help but long for what Paul has. Not to steal it from him so I can be better, but to share what he has. And his words speak to all of us who are burdened by trying to be good enough 
who are anxious that we haven't done enough, who are frustrated by comparing ourselves with others. He tells us all to consider our gains and accomplishments as trash for the sake of gaining Christ, to gain the joy that he has, that God has made himself known through Jesus and knowing him is a far greater treasure than anything we could ever earn in this life. And so may we have this reevaluation worked in us by the Spirit. May He help us to treasure Jesus above all else. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do ask that You would help us to reevaluate things. We know the value of money and bills. We, we know the value of things in this world, though it does change at times. And so, God, we pray that you would help us to see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. That for his sake, that we would set aside and discard our good works and how we consider them. To not even consider them when it comes to being saved. To not consider them when it comes to our peace and assurance, and to not even consider them when we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ, but to be united that we all know the same Jesus and that we all are known by the same Jesus. Lord, may that be the treasure that we find in the Scriptures. May it be the treasure we find in You. And may that treasure well up in our heart and so overflow into our lives as we look more and more like Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. Knowing Jesus is our great treasure, we give treasure back to Him as a sign of our discarding it. We give it back. And so we have the offering plates in the back and the front to receive our offerings and gifts to God. And at this time, we will stand and sing. There is a Redeemer. It is hymn 308. You can find it in the bulletin.
Now receive the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you today and forevermore. Amen.